Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. It's been a minute, but we are finally back in your earbuds for a great sixth season. This time around, our theme is finding a new normal. While we are eager to move beyond the past few years of global pandemic, racial reckoning, political turmoil, and natural disasters, we want to first pause for a moment and reflect. Our hope is that we don't go back to normal, but that we pay attention to what we've learned. We are talking with five guests about recently published papers and about lessons learned during the COVID pandemic. Lessons about running a research lab, teaching, publishing, traveling, and conferencing equitably and sustainably. In many ways, the pandemic exacerbated existing inequities and took the greatest toll on those who were already in precarious positions. Today, we talk about one of the most precarious positions in academia, the pre-tenure faculty member with kids. We discuss the limitations of giving pre-tenure faculty an extra year to tenure, the challenges of a dual professor couple, and what institutions could be doing, but typically aren't, to support young faculty. We hope this discussion helps move us towards solutions both specific to the challenges of the pandemic, but also that could be applied to the more general challenges of young families on the tenure track. Kelly, an assistant professor in the Genetics Development and Cell Biology Department at Iowa State University. Dior received her BS in Chemistry from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 2000, and her PhD in Plant Biology from the University of California, Davis in 2009, before doing an NIH postdoctoral fellowship with Jeff Long at the Salk Institute and a second postdoc with Mark Estelle. She joined her current department as an adjunct assistant professor in 2015 before moving to her current role in 2019. Our paper today is Slim Shady is a novel allele of phytochrome B present in the tDNA line SALK015201, and it was published in Plant Direct last year. Dior, can you give us a short summary of this paper? Sure. So in this study, it was a reverse genetic screen that we did looking for novel regulators of um, auxin-mediated gene expression. So we had done proteomics experiments to look at um, auxin-mediated changes in protein abundance and reshaping the proteome um, in hypocotyls and roots and in seedlings. And so we wanted to follow up and functionally characterize some of these candidate proteins to try to figure out some new regulators of plant growth and development. And one of these candidate genes that we had picked out, uh, unfortunately had two different alleles with two different phenotypes. And so this story was really sort of um, a way for us to, you know, highlight the genetic screen, but also nail down uh, what this particular sulk line, uh, which we 
affectionately called Slim Shady, <laughs> uh, was, was really related to in terms of its genetic function. So in order to figure that out, we were able to use genomic sequencing data, which was available for the mutant to actually pinpoint where the causative allele was. We did really traditional Arabidopsis complementation sorts of experiments, non-complementation, um, we did transcriptomic gene uh, expression analyses to look at, you know, what was altered in the mutant. Um, and then also just some really basic phenotypic characterization of, of what was altered. I, I just love this, this paper. It, it's such a good reminder of all these like basic things about how to do genetics and phenotyping and how to be careful and then understand what's going on and then taking it to the next step. And I think it's a great story about how you leverage genetics to figure out what went wrong with an experiment. But obviously, um, it's never fun to see that you have spent a whole bunch of time pursuing a story that didn't really pan out. I kept persisting on this because um, as an assistant professor, we all know that we need publications. And I felt that what I had thus far was still going to be appropriate for a journal like Plant Direct. I think if there weren't journals like Plant Direct and, and these platforms didn't exist, then I would have had to just drop it in a hot minute and be done with it. Um, and instead, you know, in conversations with the first author, the grad student who did the bulk of, of these studies, who's my first grad student, you know, we kind of kept going back and forth. And it wasn't just that we were set back in some ways. It was also that the first author, Lincoln, you know, he really doubted himself. He really doubted a lot of his results and a lot of things were not making sense all the time. And as a, as a young grad student, that was very, very frustrating. And so we had to kind of carefully just, you know, um, check the books, right? Dot our I's and cross all of our T's. At the same time, I was really, really lucky to have an awesome collaborator, Brian Dilks, who's also a really um, strong mentor for me. And a friend of the podcast. <laughs> and a friend of the podcast who, you know, really helped sort of bolster me through this and say, let's just get it done and let's just square it away. And let's also, you know, use this as a good reminder for folks that maybe have lost their way or made too many assumptions about how easy it is to pluck something off the shelf. And, you know, this allele had actually been previously published by another group in a very high profile journal. And so I felt it was important to get the record straight while at the same time, I had to let go of this fantastic hypothesis that, uh, you know, protein involved in splicing was going to be a really cool link for post-transcriptional auxin, you know, regulated gene expression. So, I mean, um, Maybe if I wasn't an assistant professor who was so hungry for publications, I would have just said, all right, that's, you know, two years down the drain, whatever. But it's so hard. It's like this whole sunken cost thing that gets people when they're gambling where you're like, like you said, I spent a bunch of time on this. Mm -hmm. What can we get out of it? How much mm -hmm. more time will it be? And these are, these are like, these are really hard questions. And I think we've all nailed it sometimes and uh really not stuck the landing in other cases but this was a great i think this is a great example of like a complete story that you're right it's not going to make it to the cover of science but is a great uh mentoring and teaching tool and like now we really now you really know what's going on 
Yeah. And I think, I think it's also a really cool example of how there is a wealth of data out there and it comes from different groups at different times. So we didn't do the whole genome sequencing on the SALK 015201C line. That was actually done previously by another group randomly for a transposon study. And yet we could go and pull that genomic data. The whole genome had, because I almost thought at one point, we'll just spend the money and sequence the genome because I want to know what the mutation is. I can't deal with this anymore, you know? And yet it was already done. We just had to do the data analysis. And so that this is that sort of post-genomic world that we're living in, where if you have access to these sorts of resources, which may have been created for some totally different reason, um, you can still reanalyze that data and make new conclusions from it, which I think is great. And during the pandemic, it was perfect, right? Because we weren't at the bench so much. And so we were doing a lot more in silico stuff. I see. I didn't realize this was a pandemic project. It was a pre-andering because I was, I was a year into my assistant professorship. So it had, it had been going for a year and then things kind of hit a bump. So you had only been an assistant professor for a year? Yeah. Okay. We have to talk about that. <laughs> what that was like. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had not realized that you guys didn't do the sequencing on this probably because I didn't read the paper carefully enough. But um, but I think it's, uh, I mean, it, it is a great testament to the idea of open data mm-hmm. and yep. and getting that data out there and making it available for people and just trusting that the universe will find what you're doing important and useful, even if necessarily you don't necessarily use your sequencing for that one thing. It, it warmed my heart to see hear you say that that Plant Direct was the was was important for this because this this is really one of the things we wanted to do with Plant Direct was have a place where you could say, well, we have to step away from this story. It's not going to lead to this full project, but we did all this work and, and we want other people to know about it. It was good work. And, and with a little, you know, maybe it takes a little extra work to get it into the form where you can put it in plant direct, but, but at least you have somewhere to, 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 you know, deposit the work. The first author gets the chance to write a full paper, go through the review process, get all of those things happening. So I really, I, that's, that, that make, makes me happy. I like the part too, about just like removing the, luck part of the equation from getting to have a completed manuscript like I just hate that part where it's like well if it does work out then you can have a paper but if we're wrong about our hypothesis then no paper for you (laughs) I'm glad that there are these other ways yeah I mean we lost a cool candidate I mean we have lots of other cool candidates but I think also you know, yeah, Lincoln did cut his teeth on this manuscript very much so. And, and so that was a great opportunity. And, um, I think it still adds to our scientific body of knowledge. Right. So you, you had only been an assistant professor for a year and then the pandemic hit. That's right. So you are like ground zero for, the pandemic effect on tenure. So I want to hear more about that. Um, tell us, tell us what that was like, and uh, how you navigated that. Obviously, you were able to pivot a little bit with this paper to do a little bit of online uh, digital experiments. But 
what else happened? Yeah. So, so at the, so I was a, you know, assistant professor for a year in the department. Um, I had my group at the time. So spring, when it hit, when we all got completely shut down in March, I was teaching a new course for undergrads. I had a postdoc in the group, uh, a grad student in the group who was the first author on the Slim Shady uh, paper, and then seven undergrads. And so immediately only myself and the postdoc were deemed essential to come in and literally just water our plants, right? Like whatever we had going that was immediate urgent, everything else was completely, you know, um, off limits. And so I had to pick up a bunch of active research projects that, you know, were in different states and try to figure out what was essential, what was not essential, who could do what. Um, and it was really a challenge. So the first six months were um, truly hell for me. It was an exhausting emotional roller coaster. Um, we, because you're flipping, you're flipping your class at the same yes, time too. Yes, it was right? a new class. So that was really tough. I had luckily had half a semester to build a, a relationship with the students before that, but it was my first experience teaching online. It was my first time teaching this course. So, you know, nothing was perfect and everything was very uncertain. And I was living in a 30 day window because we had to submit request to do essential work on a certain time clock for myself and the postdoc. And, you know, this was March. So in March, I'm also thinking about my May's field season. So I don't only work on Arabidopsis. And so it was just all, um, <laughs> I don't know, completely chaotic. And I have a, a young child at home who also was sent home from preschool during that time. So, um, I was very lucky that I had a year in to have a good working relationship with the people in my group already to keep in touch with them by email and zoom and Webex, but it was tough. It was very, very tough. And then, um, luckily Iowa is one of the places I, I don't know, luckily or unluckily we relaxed restrictions very quickly and that fall semester I had previously negotiated as my semester off from teaching because when I was hired, I was supposed to get teaching relief and I didn't have it. I was teaching right away. So I sort of serendipitously had that semester off. And so I could focus on just keeping the lab going. What does the lab need? I had a new student join. So I feel like, um, you know, it kind of went in waves of some things getting better and some things becoming more complicated. And always in a rolling pattern of not knowing what I was going to be able to do three months out or six months out. Yeah, that's extra tough for field season. How did you, did you, were you able to get out and get your corn planted? So I think because uh, Iowa is so dependent on corn and soy, we were essentially able to argue that it was essential for agriculture and they approved that summer field season. We got, you know, our normal field season in, but it was um, <laughs> emotionally and physically very, very challenging because it was myself and um, really like nobody else in the field. Um, 
and then like colleagues and collaborators who also grow corn with me, um, including my husband and our son (laughs) was out at the field almost every day with us doing pollinations. And we had a huge diversity panel that we put out that summer. I mean, it was completely insane. So some ways I think like, how did we get things done at all? And then other ways I think back to how much we were able to accomplish and it's pretty miraculous. So, yeah. Yeah. So the pros and the cons. Yep. It's all there together. So when was your son able to go back to school? When did you stop becoming a full-time daycare along with your full-time teaching and full-time research? A year later. So for the first few months, there was no care at all, nothing. And then there was part-time care for six months. And then there was full-time care after that. So it really wasn't until spring of 2021 where I had full-time care again for our son, but then all of the rolling quarantine periods were, were starting. And I experienced five of those that year. So two weeks we would be home because of potential exposure. Right. Yeah. That happened in my household too, but I don't think we had five of them. Yeah. Yeah. His school is very strict on masking and, um, um, tracing policies and, and that was good in retrospect. Um, it still is good. It's good now, but, um, it, it made, I mean, it made it such that I felt every single day, this free floating anxiety, you know, um, am I going to get called as soon as I come into work to go pick up our son? Am I halfway through my lecture and I have to say, all right, our next five meetings are online, you know? And that sort of back of your brain, constant worry that you can't be present and active makes it very difficult. It was very difficult for me anyways, to not feel like I was a hundred percent productive and present. Oh, you're not alone. You're not alone. It was so, it was so challenging to be a parent, uh, during the pandemic and especially the youngest kids like pre pre kindergarten and kindergarten. Like that's, I just, I, I can't even imagine. So do you, are you, you, you mentioned your husband is also a faculty member and he started as an assistant professor, I think in 2015 Yep. around then. So you were sort of able to observe from the side, you know, somebody going through their first three years as a faculty member mm-hmm. and now you've sort of seen yours mm-hmm. is the, you know, what, you know, obviously the pandemic just sort of shuffles everything, but you're now sort of sitting here three years in, how do you feel that that is different um, in terms of like what you've been able to accomplish versus what he was able to accomplish? It's really hard to compare some of those differences that he has experienced versus what I've experienced, because I think that so many factors underpin those differences, including gender, including departmental expectations, support structures, and differences in the way that the two of us, I think, have done our research as young, early career people. So Justin is a proteomics guru. He was inherently very, very active in numerous collaborations, um, which I really think helped bolstered a lot of his research program, whereas, you know, I'm sort of more of that classical developmental geneticist that 
um, wasn't really doing a ton of collaborations initially. But, but I mean, we do talk about this a lot because I think it's impossible not to measure one's trajectory and success compared to somebody else, especially a colleague. I'm sure all of those things make a difference, but it is also got to be very hard if you're trying as an assistant professor to build a network to not be able to go to meetings and not really, you know, walk around and talk to yeah. people, you know, and yeah. you and I saw each other at the maze meeting for the first time right. in three years uh, in March. And that was the, you know, the, the thing that was so clear to me is that we, we can make up for the talks. You know, I saw plenty of talks during the pandemic, but that interaction of what's the casual conversations, just sitting around, seeing what people are doing and, and getting to know people. So hard to do in the pandemic and, and looking back, so critical for me in establishing my research in my lab. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all of those sorts of qualitative experiences, the more social um, aspects of bringing seminar speakers to your department to interact with them there, going to meetings. Um, yeah, a lot of those other things that expand your professional network that are, are totally absent during that pandemic period. I was lucky that I, I did give some virtual talks. It's not really the same, but then again, it did support a few things of you know collaboration and colleagues. So it's not perfect, but I'm grateful for what I was able to do. I think anybody who's paying attention knows that the pandemic just hammered pre-tenure faculty it, for all, in all of these ways that we've discussed, and especially pre-tenure faculty with children or with pre-existing medical conditions. And so institutions have been trying to respond to that. I know, for example, WashU gave everybody an extra year to tenure. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what was, what was available to you? Yeah. So ISU has offered a 10 year clock extension program. So, um, the policy was you could apply any time, um, for that one year, uh, COVID-19 10 year clock extension with really no real justification needed. You could just say, I'm an assistant professor. I'm going to apply for it. And they would approve it. And I think I am the only assistant professor in my department who didn't take it, who didn't do that. And that was it. That was the only thing that ISU offered. If you got a tenure clock extension, you could then ask for an extension of your startup funds in terms of the time that it needs to be spent. Otherwise, they have a very hard three-year window and then it's Cinderella and it's gone. So why didn't you take why didn't you take the extension yourself? Well, I didn't take the extension because a it wasn't going to extend the time I had to spend my startup money. I still would have like basically ran out of money with one year extra still to go and it didn't really make any sense to me to do that. B I felt like um I was still being productive enough to stay on track. I was still teaching. I was still publishing. I still was actively training research personnel in the lab. Like all of my metrics were good. So I felt like I was still on track. And also, um, you know, I am early career, but I'm old. I have been doing so many other, you know, um, I don't want to call it purgatory positions, but I, I will. I've, I've been in purgatory for so long. <laughs> I was an adjunct assistant professor for years. I did two postdocs. 
I mean, I never thought it was going to take that long from when I finished my PhD to be a tenure track professor. And so I don't want to delay promotion and tenure another year because I feel like I've been delaying it for so long already. Yeah. There's the stability that comes with Mm -hmm. tenure. There's the cachet. There's a huge, huge, like for the podcast listeners, I'm making quote marks with huge raise that comes it's like the biggest raise you'll get in your career if you stay at one institution is when you get tenure um so there's a lot to be said for it I I feel mixed about the delays to tenure because I feel like it's cheap for the university university saves money by giving everybody an extra year and then nobody has to reconfigure what tenure means or what they're expecting people to do it's just like throw another year at them, save some money, and uh, we'll just then we'll just return to the way things always have been. Yeah, I think it's very true, and I think that's it's just delaying promotion and tenure, but it doesn't really you know, but it maintains expectations, and I think the maintaining expectations is where the mindset really needs to shift because I think you know, that's the whole problem. Like these support structures that are supposedly in place are not really actually supportive. And there were some great articles and analyses and data that I even forwarded on to administrators and said, hey, here's a fantastic article of possible things we could implement here at ISU, which would support our assistant professors through this time. And it was just crickets, you know, it was just nothing beyond a 10 year clock extension was imaginable to them. And, um, so what are, what are some of the ideas in there? Sorry to interrupt you, but like, what are, what are some of the ideas that were in those articles? Um, some of them included, uh, either flexible work schedules or a change in like your position responsibility statement in order to better balance out your portfolio of what you're able to manage, especially if you're now, you know, the caregiver for someone at home, essentially providing extra funds. So like I was paying people for six months to work in the lab off of my startup. I was paying a postdoc and a grad student and a handful of undergrads. They were not working in the lab full time. I cannot ever get that money back that's a lot of money, right? So, I mean, one thing is to, you know, I mean, some people looked and said, okay, you spent six months, we'll give you an extra six months chunk because we know that that wasn't an effective time for that funds. Um, Changing teaching responsibilities, shifting those other policies for, you know, childcare support, um, just changing the expectation. That's the one that's free. So everything that you said costs the university money, except for just saying, let's keep it the way it is, but let's just acknowledge that people were likely to be less productive. Did anybody do that? No. Not that I'm aware of. No. No. No, I just had my third year reviews and nobody did that. I'll tell you. Well, f*** them. In fact, I was told to do more with less, pretty much. F*** them. Like, I'm just really bent out of shape. It's easy for me to be bent out of shape about it. I'm on the other side. But I sit on the tenure and promotion committee here, and I think most of the people we looked at were so senior by the time the pandemic happened that everybody kind of rolled through. Um, But I think we're going to really see the effects of this in another 
two yeah. or three years. That's what I think. I mean, another example of how that negatively impacted me, which is not my institution, but was a funding um, situation was I, I had a, a research publication grant from the American Association of University Women. And so it was solely to publish a, a body of work. And it was a one-year grant and I had to publish by a certain time. Well, that time was during the pandemic and six months of the postdoc's work was not happening, right? Because he couldn't come to work. And so um, I asked them for an extension. I said, we cannot publish. We've lost six months. I need another six months. We can't publish in this time period. And they said, you have to, otherwise you have to give the money back. Okay, all right, okay, sorry, sorry. Can, can we step back? The American Association of University Women. University Women. Uh-huh. Which was established to support women in American universities. Correct. And they went through the pandemic and didn't give people extensions. Correct. On their grant. Correct. Are you fucking kidding me? No. So, yeah, they said no. So we had to publish in micro publication uh, because we I had to publish in order to fulfill the terms of that funding. And that also ultimately hurt me in the end. My department was very, very not pleased with that because they didn't feel that it was, you know, um, up to standards. So I tried to explain, you know, there were terms associated with those funds and that was the only way that we could sort of make everybody happy. Um, but it, in the end, it was sort of dissatisfying for the amount of work. The whole thing just floors me, and I don't know where to start, but the idea that a one-year, 10-year clock extension when the pandemic is two and a half years now, and it's not like there are no disruptions still, right? that you would in any way think that that's a solution is bananas to me. But I think the, the bigger problem is it's the culture, it's the culture, it's the culture. Mm -hmm. Free for the university, as Liz said, to change the expectations it's it's free for your colleagues to change their expectations, mm -hmm. right? Like your third year review is your departmental colleagues. They have a choice to make. They have a choice to make and they are choosing not to. And it's not like a tenure denial is saving anybody any money either. Like if we're just going to talk about costs setting somebody up with a bunch of startup and then making it impossible for them to reach jump some over some arbitrary bar of number of publications and number of grant dollars that's like unreasonable and then just saying no you're not good enough like that's a waste of money too right and so i mean they always you know say the message is we we want to support you right like you're an investment to us um, you know, this is what you hear often at these, um, like P and T workshops and, and such, but, um, the reality is there's a, a microclimate around you. And then, you know, it kind of goes and bubbles out from there. And for the really higher up administrators to feel comfortable, you know, evaluating you, it's what's on your position responsibility statement, what you were hired to do and how you're meeting those things. And then for the department, there's all these other nuances for evaluation and, it's so less stressful if you can just make sure you are above all of those marks. <laughs> but yeah, I would have, I, I would really like to see, I would have liked to hear, it would have been great 
wow, Dior, your lab actually had a couple papers during the pandemic and you've brought in over a million dollars in PI funding and you've continued to support undergrad research and you've been teaching your classes. Like, great. You deserve to hear that, Dior. Pretty amazing, actually. That, well, actually, the, 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 the thing that they should have said after that is we'd like you to go up for tenure early. That would have been awesome, but that was not what I was told. I was told to publish four complete stories because I, I guess journals only take incomplete stuff. I really don't know. But yeah, I, was, I, I need more papers. We need, we need more publications from the group. Two, two years to do that. And we all know that it's about a year to get a publication from start to finish if all goes well. Yeah, I mean, the whole concept of tenure is a little f***ed up or a lot f***ed up. The idea that we want people to reach this bar and after which we remove pressures. Mm-hmm. Why not just remove pressures and have people work? There are lots of ways to motivate people to do great science and be great teachers that don't involve threatening to have them their job removed in five years if they don't. Yeah. And it's also real cagey. I think it doesn't really support creativity. It doesn't support, it puts a barrier in terms of when you can be explorative, when you can be more collaborative, um, when you can, you know, have the ability to kind of step outside of that box of what you were hired exactly to do with research. Um, and I think those things are, are very challenging and I mean, sort of punishing in some ways. And yet we are already seeing science very much shift from this paradigm of single PI grants, especially from early career people to more, um, you know, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, very collaborative um, you know, high functioning groups of people that have different ideas and strengths. So those things don't really fit very well either in terms of the, how many dollars are you bringing us for you yourself and, you know, your own little percentage of whatever that is. Um, and so that, that's also a mindset that I think some mentors and some faculty and programs are able to you know, be supportive of and other people are still not really thinking that they can know who that person is if they're not some sort of lonely island for their grants and and things like that. So, so one of the things, uh, you know, obviously it was not offered to Dior, uh, but I had seen some institutions that actually said, like, we want to hear, you know, how the pandemic has affected you. So we, with, implicitly, I think, to help adjust expectations. Yeah, so we, we did have these COVID-19 impact statements on our, our annual reviews. I didn't do mine this year, I just said delete, because that whole um, dichotomy of how to, of what it is you thought they wanted you to write and what kind of feedback you were supposed to be given um, or giving was totally convoluted. So the first year I did it, I thought it was exactly as you had just said, please give us honest feedback of how this year has impacted you. Um, And so in my annual report for 2020, I wrote how half the year was a wipeout. I was, you know, all all of these things, right? The childcare, the teaching, all of that. And then come to find out that actually what they were looking for was not your nitty gritty, what went wrong. 
but actually they were looking for ways that you just flip the switch and you were innovative and you made, you know, a gin and tonic out of your limes. That's the adult version of making lemonade. <laughs> yes. The, you know, the COVID-19 statement was like, okay, what have you done? That, like was really great, even though everything was really shitty. <laughs> I just thought it was like a comical, like, um, no, I can't, you know, it was like, they wanted to toot their own horn about ways that they were like, you know, doing great through all of this bullshit. So then this past year, I just didn't do it because I felt like it was a wash that, and, and still to this day, I think the university is not entirely transparent about what they are doing with these statements. Are they collating the data? Are they finding any trends? If do, if they are, are they changing anything? No. Um, and so why write another statement if it doesn't actually have an impact on anybody's mindset or policies? It, the NIH biosketch have for a while had a sort of section where you could explain big breaks in publishing. Yeah. And there's always been this question like, should I put, I had some babies in there or not? <laughs> like it's unclear how that would impact how people see yeah. your CV. Yeah. I mean, USDA on my annual reports for my, my NIFA grant, um, it's the same, you know, what are, what are the challenges that you've experienced or how have things changed? I mean, I will say, uh, so during the pandemic, um, one of my really close friends and colleagues died unexpectedly, not due to COVID. And that actually impacted me, um, more heavily, um, the sec the second year of the pandemic. Um, and so those, those are things that you can put into, you know, your USDA grant of, you know, loss of a collaborator, loss of key resources, you know, what's your plan for, for kind of mitigating that. Uh, so that sort of structure I think is helpful. I didn't see that sort of structure in the COVID-19 impact statement on our annual reviews. So, and I think it's great that the granting institutions are asking us this, but I think it, going back to the culture part, it's not showing up in when you submit a new grant, which is really what matters. As much as it's important to put in your grant reports and keep mm -hmm. the, you know, the program officers mm -hmm. happy and stuff, the next time you write a grant, they don't see the reports. There's no COVID impact statement on in your grant when you write it. And a colleague of ours got feedback on an NSF grant that, well, they didn't have, they haven't been that productive in the last three years while parenting small children, teaching during a pandemic. And it's just like, yeah, it's horrifying. I've sat on grant panels recently and that it's still just status quo. They're judging productivity from the last two years. Maybe take that off the items because it seems completely inhumane to be honest. But I think like the publication process during coincident with all of this has also become a lot more entrenched and very slow and complicated and high expectation that also preclude anybody from even who's doing their best getting stuff done in a real timely turnaround. So yeah, but I, I haven't seen any of that um, change in colleagues as I've sat on panels, the expectation is still um, very much there of, well, what have they been doing the last two years? And I'm like surviving. <laughs> I do feel like 
there is a slow change happening. I think some of this is getting through, but I don't think it matters. Maybe we've gone from 60% of the people having these unrealistic expectations to 40%. Mm -hmm. But that 40% is more than enough on a panel to sink a grant. Yeah, if those are your two or three reviewers. Or just one of your three reviewers, you know, it's it gets much harder, and 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 you have to if you have to fight them each time. I remember uh, sitting in a panel where this was being discussed. Oh, we should be better on uh, on grant panels in reviewing this because you shouldn't penalize women who you know maybe took a two year break or had a, a slow period in their career because they might have been propagating this species. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, I was like, yeah, that's good. You know, that's really good. The problem is I was sitting as a grad student in this panel in 2003 and we are 20 years later and it's still a problem. Well, you know, I mean, the other weird thing about that is that it's also tied to bias because I think if you're constantly in this loop, this halo effect of what have they done and what have they been doing in order to, you know, say that they're worthy of doing what they're doing now. I mean, there's other ways to evaluate that, right? So if they have preliminary data in place, they have the training, they have the collaborators, you know, great. Then Wait, 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 wait. You're saying we should evaluate the proposed science? <laughs> so much easier just to count publication. <laughs> you know? Easier. It saves so oh, much Oh, yeah. Time. It's easier just like, oh, yeah, they publish all the time in Nature Com, so give it to them. Sure, they can do it. Or, wow, this, this person hasn't published in two years. What have they been doing? Yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and, and, you know, have some fucking humanity. Yeah. I mean, did they have a kid? Did, they, did their parents die? Did their brother die? Did they have a health issue? Are they going through something? Is it, you know, are they having trouble with the fact that our country is going undergoing this massive shift to fascism like let's yeah i think there's a short term and there's a long term and i think um for me the biggest um sort of disconnect there is not being able to um recognize that especially for early career even mid-career folks who are are changing trajectories or who have gotten tenure and then you know the i mean the mentoring there also really is lacking um once you become an associate professor but i think um you know, yeah, so maybe they haven't published in the last couple of years to what you think is, you know, creme de la creme. But, you know, this isn't somebody who's been coming to these panels for 20 years asking for money and has never published anything, right? Like those two things are very, very different. And yet I feel like they're judging right. um, them the same, essentially, which to me, it's just sort of like, there's a buy-in period, there's a burn-in period, there's a, and, and also too, I think it would just be great to call the last two years a wash and instead be like, all right, what can we do that we're not currently doing to help you get those grants in, to help you finish those papers, to help you come up with another four grand to publish the paper because now your startup is done. You know what I mean? And that's a project that's not on a grant that's funded because that's the other thing is that you don't have like this sort of, you know, umbrella fund of, you know, I don't want to call it fund money, but, you know, you don't have this like creative account money that, you know, goes towards other projects that anyway. So I, those kinds of things I think would be more helpful. I think one of the things that made me the m extra angry about all this is how 
how much I got the message that we did need to extend grace to our students and to give our students understanding and to ask less of them and to not and to understand that like zoom classes are exhausting and it's hard to learn and so we had we had to adjust all of the ways in which we assess our students Mm -hmm. but nobody adjusted the way in which we were being assessed in any way the only thing I can think of is like journals like really step back from deadlines like there's a lot more like oh yeah take as long as you want and I think even some journals were like we're going to really try not to ask people to do additional experiments right Mm -hmm. just like if it's close just say yes right it was very it was a very dramatic juxtaposition Mm -hmm. for me to be asked to give grace to students and then watch absolutely no empathy, humanity, or grace being extended to my junior colleagues who were, you know, having an extremely rough time. Some of my colleagues moved to other states so that their parents could take care of their kids while they taught for WashU, who were, you know, kind of an employer, makes their job so hard that you have to move away (laughs) in order to do it. And what if you don't have a, what if you don't have parents to take care of your kids? I didn't. I don't. Then you just don't get to keep your job? What are we going to learn anything from all this or not? I don't think so. I hope I hope other places are. I mean, I have heard some really fantastic examples of, you know, colleagues just being able to look in and say, "Wow, all of our junior faculty are really struggling. Let's just take all their classes so they don't have to teach the next quarter." or however many quarters they need off from teaching. You know, just being more flexible and realizing that sometimes what you do now can positively impact two years out, three years out, but it doesn't necessarily have to continue for that long, you know, but it seems that people are very, very slow to do something in the now that they think will just get stuck. And yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a whole year of, you know, advising students who were really struggling and I would have to just emotionally shut myself off from what was going on in my world in order to tend to their need because, you know, the university um, really harps on the fact that we're very student centered and, and student facing. And that's a challenge, but I think that's a challenge probably for many people in different professions all the time where they have to um, put that aside and focus on, on other things. So. All right. Well, Dior, I, I, we really appreciate you giving us your time and your energy and, and, and the real uh, view of how things are going. Um, I frankly find it mostly maddening, but it's an important thing that we need to talk about and we actually need to fix this culture. So if people want to uh, discuss this further with you or have any thoughts uh, that they, that they want to share with you, what, uh, um, how can they get in touch? Yeah. So, I mean, thanks so much for letting me share these ideas and experiences. I, I think it's really great to hear other people's stories too. And so I'm always happy to chat with, with people. Um, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Kelly Dior, last name first, first name second. Uh, by email, d-k-e-l-l-y at iowastate.edu, um, or through any of the other usual channels um, where people might connect. And Liz, how can people get in touch with you? 
Twitter is also my preferred mode of communication. You can reach me there at, at ehaswell. And you can reach me at Baxter TWI. That's at Baxter Twee. And you can reach the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And with that, thanks again, Dior. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dior. Take care. Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell. Transcripts are by Joe Stormer. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.